I was thinking this morning about the, the stages of opening a Christmas present and engaging with wrapping paper. And if you're a parent of children, you've seen this. The, the first stage is the infant stage where you really want the infant to open the present, but you're kind of like the puppet master and you're grabbing their arm and sliding it under the wrapping paper and, and you're cheering for them. They have no idea. They're probably half asleep. The infant doesn't really care about the wrapping paper. The next phase is kind of like the, the, the little bit older than an infant baby slobbery stage where uh, the, the wrapping paper is more fun than the present. You know, and, and this is just another thing to chew, and, and, and they're grabbing the paper and trying to put it in their mouth, and it's all soaking wet. You know, you can make paper mache out of it when you're done if you want to. And the stage after that is, is the stage where they're kind of like a little squirrel, you know, taking a little piece, ripping off a tiny little piece of the paper, and you're sitting there watching this one present. It's 15 minutes to peck off every little piece of that paper, and then finally they get to the kind of robust, mature child stage where they know how to just rip the whole thing off. And then the, the final stage, I guess, would be the dad phase where you shake it first and then you open it. It was interesting for us in the Butoh household yesterday in that our youngest, Ezekiel, he was at that pecking stage where you rip off the little parts of the wrapping paper but he had never gone through the other earlier stages with our family. Uh, most of you know that uh, our family had the joy of going to Columbia, South America in February of this year to meet our little guy, Ezekiel. Uh, after five years of praying for this adoption and planning for this adoption. Finally, in February, we went to Columbia and we were there for a month where we met our little guy and brought him home. And ever since then, we got home in March of this year. It's been this incredible bonding phase where, where you're, you're, you're learning to get used to life as a family. And those are, I think, the, the, the main phases of an international adoption. So if you know anything about international adoptions, there's, there's really three main phases. There, there's a planning phase. Uh, some people call this the paper pregnancy because you are filling out tons and tons and tons of paperwork. Uh, and, and we did that for years filling out paperwork, form after form after form, and then the forms would expire, and you fill them out again. The planning phase. And then there's the travel phase, where you actually go to that other country, wherever it is, and you meet your child. And, and usually you're there for a little bit, and then you bring them home. And then the rest of the child's life, there is the bonding phase, where, where, where you're learning to bond with that child, and they're learning to bond with you. I think those three phases of an international adoption can provide for us a, an analogy for how the Trinity relates to a follower of Jesus. So if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles again to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, and I'll show you. Uh, if you've been with us the past month, we have been examining this text uh, trying to um, understand that you cannot tell the Christmas story without the Trinity. 
Of course, we know that you need Jesus to tell the Christmas story, but we've also talked about how you need to understand God the Father and the role that he played. Last week, we looked at God the Son, and this morning, we're going to look at God the Spirit. I want to read the text for you one more time in Galatians chapter 4. Beginning of verse 4, the passage says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of women, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are not, no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, I want you to notice, this isn't merely a text about the Trinity. It's also a text about adoption. You notice that the Father is the architect behind the, the planning phase of our adoption. He's the one who sends the Son. And the Son, of course, is the one who endures the, the travel phase of our adoption. He is the one who leaves the glories of heaven and comes to this earth to live the life that you should have lived and die the death that you should have died and rise from the dead. And God the Spirit then, He is given to us to secure the, the bonding phase of our adoption. He is given to us by the Father and the Son to help assure you that you truly belong to God. Could it be that many Christians do not feel like or act like Christians? Because we fail to see the massive importance that the Holy Spirit plays in our lives as followers of Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about today. The role that the Spirit plays in assuring you that you belong to God. I want to ask and answer with God's help from the text four questions about the Holy Spirit. Question number one is, who is the Spirit? Who is the Spirit? Look at verse 6 again with me. It says, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Who is the Spirit? I say two things that are crucial that we must say and must believe about the Holy Spirit. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. Now, when we say person, uh, we, we often think or we get confused because we usually use the term person to refer to a human person. And that's because those are the only types of persons we usually see, right? But we regularly say and sing that God exists in three what? Persons. We say that regularly. So God the Father is a person. He's, when we say that, we, we don't mean he's a human being. We mean that he's an individual, an individual personality. We mean that he, he thinks and he speaks and he feels and he acts. Same is true of God the Son. We see that all over his earthly ministry. God the Son, Jesus Christ, is a thinking, feeling, speaking, acting, personality, being. The same is true of the Spirit. In the same way that the Father and the Son are both persons, the Holy Spirit is also a person. Now, I think this is really important because, if we're honest, 
many Christians sometimes think of the Holy Spirit as if he is a force or an energy. You tend to think of the Spirit, and I've, I've even heard Christians allude to him this way, almost like the force in Star Wars. But the force is not a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. Let me show you a few reasons why we say the Spirit is a person. One reason is the Spirit speaks. The Spirit speaks. So gravity is, is a force, but gravity doesn't talk to you, right? It's impersonal. But the Spirit is a, is a person. He speaks. So Romans 8 says that the Holy Spirit prays for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, that ought to be for you a stunning truth that there is a spirit, God the Spirit, a real person who is praying for you when you don't know how to pray for yourself. In, in the Gospels, in John chapter 14, Jesus says that the Spirit will come and teach the disciples all things. He speaks. Or if you read through the books of, book of Acts, several times in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 8, verse 29, or 13, 2, and other places, the Spirit speaks directly to individuals. He's a person. He speaks. The Spirit thinks. Uh, Romans 8, 27 makes it clear that the Holy Spirit has a mind, which is, of course, used for thinking. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, we're told that the Spirit uses His mind to understand the thoughts of the Father. The Spirit thinks. The Spirit feels. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, we are told not to grieve the Holy Spirit by our sinful speech. So the Holy Spirit can feel a measure of grief over the sinful actions of God's people. You know, you, you can't hurt gravity's feelings. You can't make electricity mad. It's an impersonal force. It's an impersonal energy. But the Holy Spirit is not that. He is a person. He feels. Or Hebrews 10 verse 29 says that those who understand the gospel but reject it by their sinful lives cause the Holy Spirit to feel outrage. He's a person. He feels, and the Spirit acts. And the New Testament is overflowing with activity by the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who overshadows Mary so that she conceives the baby Jesus in Luke 1. It is the Spirit who leads and empowers Jesus during his earthly ministry. It is the Spirit who inspires men to write the Word of God without error in 2 Peter chapter 1. It is the Spirit who leads the apostles as the church is born all over the book of Acts. The Spirit is a person. So here's what this means practically, brothers and sisters and friends. When you talk about the Holy Spirit, don't call him an it. He's not an it. He's a person. I would encourage you to do what Jesus does and the New Testament does. Anytime it uses a pronoun for the Spirit, it always says he. We're praying to a he, a person who is given to us. Who is the Spirit? He's a person. But he's not just any person. The Spirit is God. The second truth you have to understand about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit 
is God. He is the third person of the Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son. The Spirit is not like JV God. He is fully, equally God, alongside the Father and the Son, co-equal, co-eternal. That's the Holy Spirit. Uh, let, let me show you just real quick two reasons why we believe this. One is that the Spirit has always existed. The Spirit has always existed. There never was a time when the Spirit did not exist. So even at the beginning of your Bibles, if you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, very beginning of Scripture, the Bible says, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. There was never a time when the Spirit was not. He didn't start existing at Pentecost. He's always existed. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 says he is the eternal Spirit. So the Spirit has always existed. And the Spirit has all of God's attributes. Psalm 139, we read that to open our service this morning, teaches us that the Spirit is omnipresent. He's everywhere. There's nowhere you can go, brother, sister, friend, where the Holy Spirit is not. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent because He's God. John 14, 26, 1 Corinthians 2, teach us that the Spirit is omniscient. The Spirit is all-knowing. There is nothing that can be known that the Spirit does not know. He knows all things. If you read what the Spirit does, it's clear that the Spirit is omnipotent. He has all power. He has all the attributes of God. Why? Because the Spirit is God, third person of the Trinity. Now, let me give you one example in Scripture of both of these truths about the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 5, um, perhaps you remember the story. There's this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and uh, everybody's bringing gifts to the apostles so that the apostles, who are the, the leaders of the early church, can help meet the needs of, of those that have great financial needs in the church. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they sell a piece of property, and they decide to give the money to the church, except... Somehow they come up with this plan. We're going to tell Peter, the head of the apostles, that we got X amount of money for this land, but really we got this much more, and we're going to keep the excess for ourselves. And so in Acts chapter 5, Ananias goes before Peter, and he, and he gives them the money. He says, here's the money I, so I got for selling this piece of property. And Peter accuses Ananias in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, of lying to the Holy Spirit. Now think about that for just a second. You don't lie to an impersonal force. You don't lie to gravity. You, you don't lie to electricity. Who do you lie to? You lie to people. You lie to persons. Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he's a person. But then a few verses later, Peter says, you have not lied to man, but to God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is God. Who is the Spirit? He is a person. He is God. Question number two, where is the Spirit? Where is the Spirit? Now, we've already said that the Spirit is omnipresent. 
which means that the Spirit is everywhere. When we walked in this room, the Holy Spirit was already here. We don't welcome the Spirit into this place. He welcomes us. He's everywhere. He was already here. There is no place where the Holy Spirit is not. And yet, if you look at the text, Galatians chapter 6 indicates that the Spirit is present in a special way, in a special place. Look at Acts chapter 6, verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, if you remember your Old Testament, you know that sometimes, even though the Spirit is everywhere, sometimes the Spirit would manifest His presence in a special place. So think, for example, the temple. Think specifically the the holy of holies. God is everywhere, and yet he localizes his presence, manifests his glory in one particular place. Even though he's everywhere, he's, he's really there, there, showing you his glory there, manifesting his presence there. Paul says in Galatians 6 that the Holy Spirit is doing that in the hearts of everyone who's a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, even though the Spirit is everywhere, He has chosen to take up residence in a special way in your heart. Christian, I want you to think about this for just a second. The eternal Spirit who has always existed, who has all power and all wisdom and all knowledge, has chosen to live in your heart, Christian. That's an incredible truth. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, you too can receive this spirit, not by working for him, but by turning from your sins and trusting in Jesus. This is believing in the gospel. This is conversion. This is crying out to God and asking him to save you. And you can receive the Spirit. But for most of you in this room that are followers of Jesus, the moment you repented and put your faith in Jesus, the Spirit took up residence in your heart. That's what Galatians 6, or Galatians 4, verse 6 is saying. Now, this should be, Christian, for you and I, one of the greatest motivations to holiness that there is. The fact that the Holy Spirit, the eternal Spirit, is living in you. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Do you realize, Christian, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. If you're a Christian, that's what the Bible says about you. That God has chosen to manifest His presence not in a temple in Jerusalem or a tabernacle in the wilderness or even this building in which we gather, but in the hearts of all who call upon the name of Jesus. The Spirit is in you what the text is saying. Now, sometimes Christians will say, well, if I'm going to be a faithful Christian, what I really need is more of the Spirit. 
You know, I, I need to ask God to give me more of the Spirit. Or sometimes we'll say, we'll ask God to fill me with His Spirit. And if I can just get a little bit more of the Spirit in me, then I can be the type of Christian that I want to be, that I'm supposed to be. I need more of the Spirit. I want to argue this morning that that is not what the New Testament teaches. There's one verse that we reference a lot when we talk about this, and that's Ephesians chapter 5. It'll be on the screen in just a moment, or you can turn there in your Bible if you'd like. But John Owen, uh, a theologian in England, said, where the Holy Spirit is given, he is given absolutely and not more or less. In other words, when God gives you the Spirit, He doesn't give you like a third of the Spirit and then encourage you to ask for the other two-thirds and then He'll give it to you. He gives you all of Himself when He gives you the Spirit. What about Ephesians 5, verse 18? The text says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And someone will say, Aha! Be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with something implies receiving more of something. So if I'm going to be filled with the Spirit, it means that I'm getting more Spirit. Well, not necessarily. Uh, Andy Nicelli has a really helpful article on the filling with the Spirit, and he uses this illustration. He says, if I say that I filled the pool with water, I'm saying that I added more water to the pool. Got it? Right? I fill the pool with water, more water in the pool. But what if I say I filled the pool with a hose? What am I saying? I used the hose as the means by which the pool got filled up. I didn't put a huge hose in the pool. I used the hose to fill up the pool. I think that's the way that Paul is using this word, being filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is the hose, if you will. He's not giving us more of himself. He is filling us up with joy-filled, heartfelt obedience to Christ. He is not giving you more of him. He is enabling, enabling you to live obediently in light of what you have already received. He's not giving you more of himself, but he's enabling you to faithfully receive and live out what you have already received in Christ. So we don't ask God for more of the Spirit. In fact, the New Testament never tells Christians to ask for the Spirit or to ask for more of the Spirit. God has already given all of himself to every one of his children. Question number three this morning, why? Why do we need the Spirit? Why do we need the Spirit? There's many right and true answers that we could give to this question. We need the Spirit because without the Spirit, we cannot be born again. John 3, 5, Titus 3, 5. We need the Spirit because He helps us to understand the Scriptures when we read them. 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14. We need the Spirit because He prays for us when we don't know how to pray, Romans 8. We need the Spirit because He convicts us when we sin, John 16, verse 8. We need the Spirit because He gives us gifts to serve the church, 1 Corinthians 12. But Paul mentions a specific reason why we need the Spirit in Galatians chapter 4. Look at the text again with me, specifically verses 6 and 7. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. 
And if a son, then an heir through God. To use our analogy from earlier, the Father sends the Spirit to help you bond with the family that you've been adopted into. He sends the Spirit to assure you that you, yes, you, Christian, really belong to God. Let me suggest to you three incredibly important truths from these two verses about the Spirit and how He assures us. First of all, if we are God's children. That's truth number one. Let me pause for just a second. If you're not a Christian, I'm not talking to you, but I can be talking to you if you will trust in Christ. If your faith is in Christ, you are God's children. Now remember, how is it that we get into the family of God? By birth? No, by adoption. That's clear in the passage. So if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, you can be adopted in to the family by trusting in Christ. If you've done that, this is talking about you. You are God's children. Look at verse 7. You are no longer a slave but a son. You used to be a slave to the law, unable to obey it, yet doomed to suffer its penalty. Now you're a child of God. Because you've been adopted by God the Father. Now, perhaps, ladies in the room, you're looking at that text and you're saying, wait a minute, what about us? Paul says we've received adoption as sons. Why doesn't it say sons and daughters? Is Paul being sexist? Is he a chauvinist? What's going on? Paul knows that it's sons and not daughters in that world who would receive the inheritance. And so when Paul says, you have received adoption as sons, he's not overlooking you, ladies. He's making a point. He's telling you, listen, no matter who you are, if you belong to God the Father through faith in God the Son, then you receive a full inheritance. Or you could say it this way, God shares all of his stuff with all of his children. We belong to God if we're Christians. But here's a second truth that maybe for some of you it might be hard to admit, but I would suggest you know that it's true. We don't always feel like God's children. If you're a Christian, you belong to God, but if you're honest with yourself, you don't always feel like it. If you read the book of Galatians, Paul devotes so much of this letter to helping these Galatian Christians to understand that they are not slaves. They're sons and daughters of God. They've been adopted into the family of God. Why does he have to tell them that over and over again? Because even when you become a Christian, you don't always feel like it. Sometimes you feel like you're cut off from the Father. We, we doubt our sonship when we sin. So if you're in this room and you're a Christian, but you've wandered from God into some sin, you're going to feel less like a child of God because of your sin. We also doubt our sonship when we suffer. When we suffer. Why do you think Job's wife said to Job, curse God and die? Because in that moment of acute suffering, it's very tempting for all of us, if we're honest, to wonder, does God really love me? 
We doubt our sonship. We doubt we're a child of God when we sin and when we suffer. Here's the question I want to ask you this morning. Where will you turn in that moment of doubt? When you are tempted to doubt that you belong to the Father, where do you go? Where do you go for assurance? You know where the Galatians went? The Galatians went to the law. Here's what they did. If we want to prove, if we want to really feel like we belong to the Father, we need to be good law keepers. We're going to find assurance. The closer we are to keeping Moses' law, the better we're going to feel about ourselves. The closer we are at obeying this thing, the better we're going to feel like we belong to the Father. And Paul wants to be incredibly clear throughout this letter. Listen, the Mosaic law will assure you of only one thing, that apart from Christ, you deserve hell. That's all that it will assure you of. It will not assure you that you belong to the Father. But God wants you to be assured that you belong to him. And so, truth number three, the Father wants you to know you're his child. That's why he sends the Spirit. Verse 6, because you are sons. Because God really has adopted you into his family, Christian. Because you really do belong to the Father, Christian. God wants you to feel his love. He wants you to be assured of his love and care for you. So what does he do? He sends himself. He sends the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That word Abba is an Aramaic word, the language that Jesus would have spoken while he was on this earth. And we're sometimes told that that word means daddy. That term would often be used by children to refer to their dads. But daddy's probably not the best English equivalent because that word would also be used by full-grown men and women to refer to their fathers. So probably a good translation might be something like dear dad or dear father. So there's intimacy there. There's companionship there. But here's what I want you to think about. Notice what the Spirit, he's sent into your heart. He's crying out. Notice what he's not crying out. The text doesn't say God sent his spirit crying out, God is holy, or God is Trinity, or God's word is true, or Jesus is Lord. God the Father sends his spirit into your heart crying out what? Abba, Father. What does that say about the relationship, Christian, that God desires with you? that he would send his spirit into your heart and what he's crying out in your heart is relationship language to the Father in heaven. I think it's significant as well that that word crying in the text crying Abba Father is in the present tense. In other words, the spirit doesn't come one time in your life, Christian, and say you belong to the Father He is doing this for the rest of your life, helping you to bond with the Father who has adopted you into his family because you don't always feel like you belong to him. I wonder if that's true of anyone here in this morning. I think it's interesting as well that every time you pray to your dear Father in heaven, the Spirit is assuring you you belong to him. 
Notice it doesn't tell us the content of these prayers, these cries. When we cry out, Abba, Father, we, we may sometimes be crying out, Father, forgive me because I have wandered from you again. Or, Father, help me because I can't get my life just together the way I need to. Father, help me, I'm in pain. Father, please, I need you right now. The point is, the child of God desires a relationship with his father, and he cries out to him. Maybe even for you, Christian, sometimes what you're crying out is, Father, I don't feel like I belong to you, but I want to feel like it. And in that moment, the Spirit is assuring you that you belong to God. Why do we need the Spirit? Because the Father wants you to know that you belong to him. Brothers, sisters, and friends, um, many of you have asked me or Holly over the past few months since we brought Ezekiel into our family, how's it been? How are things going? And those are hard, hard questions to answer, honestly, because it's so different. Uh, we've got four bio kids, uh, homemade babies, if you like, um, and uh, we, we love them, and they're also very beautiful and also predictable in a sense in how they get acclimated into our family. Bringing in a family, uh, bringing in a baby into our home by adoption has been so different from anything else. And you know, here's the crazy thing. We, we learned a lot in our planning phase of our adoption. We learned a lot about what, what they call attachment or bonding, where, where the child begins to feel like he belongs to you or she belongs to you. And there's all sorts of research and study and psychology behind that attachment. And we did all these training seminars and read these books and all this stuff about how hard it might be for the child to attach to us. But I'll be honest with you and transparent with you as my church family, what we didn't expect was that it might be hard for us to attach to him. What we didn't expect is there might be in our own hearts selfishness and sin and impatience, and anger as parents that would sometimes make it hard for us to feel like we were His. Can I tell you something about God the Father? None of that is true of Him. Listen to me. You might not feel like you belong to Him. If your faith is in Christ, He longs for you to feel the assurance of his love for you. He longs for it. He is so committed to not only you being adopted in the family, but you knowing and feeling that you're adopted into the family, that he sends God himself, the third person of the Trinity, the eternal spirit into your hearts to help assure you of his love. That, to me, is absolutely mind-blowing. And that's the love you have by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In just a moment, we're going to conclude our, this sermon this morning 
with another reading from the Nicene Creed. We've been talking about this the past few weeks. This is put together or, uh, beginning in 325 AD as a group of Christian pastors and theologians gathered in Nicaea to debate what Christians believed about the Trinity. And in this ancient creed, we have a heritage that has been given to us from our brothers and sisters, our family that have gone on before us and what they believed about God the Spirit. So I'm gonna invite you to stand with me, if you will, and we'll conclude and then sing together by affirming, if you believe it, the words on the screen that we believe about the Holy Spirit from the Nicene Creed. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. Would you pray with me before we sing together? Jesus, thank you so much for sending us your spirit. Spirit, thank you that you are working in the hearts of everyone that belongs to the Father to assure him, her, that they are sons and daughters of God. I don't know what people are feeling as they walked into these, rooms, into these doors this morning, but I'm sure that some of us were not feeling like we belong to you. Lord, I pray that we would lay aside our feelings and trust in your faithful word and what your word says about those who confess that Jesus is Lord. And Lord, as we latch on to the truthfulness of your word by the power of your spirit, may we leave with a bold assurance that you have adopted us, that we are brothers and sisters by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if there's anyone in this room that would say, you know what, I've not cried out to him for salvation. I've not asked God to forgive me of my sins. I've not put my faith in Jesus. We pray that they would cry out today, right where they're at. Pray that they'd go to the white flag and talk to someone before they leave here. But may your people leave assured. And when, our, when the doubts come again, may your spirit cry out in our hearts again, Abba, Father, until the day comes when we look and see you and are forever with you. In Jesus' name, amen.